I'm on Facebook, doing nothing. It's February 12th, 2015, 6.54 p.m. My kids are wrapping up homework. My wife is on the phone. Again, I'm doing nothing. Photos, chatter, birthday wishes, whatever. Then a DM pops up. It's from Victor Nunez, a man I haven't seen in some 15 years. He's an attorney now, but back in the late 1990s and early 2000s, when I was a writer at Sports Illustrated, Vic worked at the magazine as a reporter. Which means, after we'd file a piece, Victor would check to make sure the facts added up. He'd research statistics, he'd make double-check calls, he'd listen to interviews. Anyhow, Vic is DMing me, which is unusual. This is what he writes. Hey Jeff, hope all is well. So I recently moved to a new house and I finally found my old storage box with everything SI. I thought it was lost between moves from the US to the UK to the back to the US and multiple moves since. I found the tapes. Just listen to them. I can hear that voice clear as day. So how can I get this to you? Still in the New York City area? I reply, wow, wow, wow. I moved to California. Is there any way you can send them to me? Wow. A week later, I have the tapes. Three of them, all dating back to 1999, the year an Atlanta Braves pitcher named John Rocker made the biggest mistake of his career and agreed to allow a Sports Illustrated writer to come to Georgia and spend the day with him. I was that writer. Here's a snippet from one of the tapes. It's fuzzy and grainy because that's what time does to audio. But I think it gives a pretty good example of what we're dealing with here. Actually, a correction. The mistake wasn't Rocker's decision to allow a writer to come down. The mistake was Rocker opening his mouth and speaking his true feelings on race, on sexuality, on politics, on New York. The resulting profile, headlined at full blast, ran in the December 27, 1999 issue of the magazine and turned into one of the most controversial pieces in Sports Illustrated's history. Rocker wound up suspended by Major League Baseball. He was fined. He was demoted. He was plastered on the front page of papers across America. The face of racism. John Rocker, wrote Mike Lupica of the New York Daily News, has a sensibility of a pickup truck. Writing that article didn't merely change John's life. It changed mine, too. While for a long time I resisted admitting such, it put me on the map. I was quickly promoted to a Sports Illustrated senior writer position. Those elusive, lengthy features were finally being assigned to me. Within three years, I had my first book deal. The author Jeff Perlman here on the show. How are you, Jeff? I'm well. So when I received the tapes from Victor Nunez and popped them into my prehistoric microcassette player, well, it was weird. It was like going back in time. I was 27 again, a kid on the rise, driving around Georgia with one of the best closers in baseball, listening to him spew hate. Nearly 20 years later, it's a crazy, insane, improbable story of drama, of scandal, of timing, of political correctness, of a lack of political correctness of race and class and gender and sexuality. Mostly, though, it's a story of journalism, and it's the subject of this week's 100th episode of Two Writers, Slingin' Yang. It's an October afternoon in New York City, 1999. I'm sitting in my apartment, a one-bedroom, fifth-floor walk-up with creaky floors and some bed bug issues. You can hear horns honking down from 64th Street. People are always shouting, I don't know what time it is, maybe newness, possibly a little earlier. My shower's leaking. It's always leaking. I'm a 27-year-old staff writer for Sports Illustrated, at a time when being a 27-year-old staff writer for Sports Illustrated feels like a pretty big deal. Only, it's not. 
Not really. I've spent the past two years or so on the Major League Baseball beat, which means compiling the marginally read weekly Inside Baseball Notes column. Or, as a late Toronto Blue Jays manager, Jim Fregosi once barked to me when I told him I write the weekly Inside Baseball Notes column, Son, I don't know what that is, and I don't give a fuck. More than anything, I'm, in sports vernacular, Tom Verducci's backup. If you know anything about sports journalism, especially baseball sports journalism, Tom Verducci is the best of the best of the best, and has been for decades. He's just a far superior writer and a far superior reporter than you, than me, than pretty much all of us. So, in 1999, I'm basically Darren Bragg, sitting behind an in-his-prime Ken Griffey Jr., which means when it comes to writing meaningful stuff like lengthy features, I rarely play. But now, with the postseason rolling along, Tom, or Tommy, as our editor refers to him, can't be everywhere. The Yankees and the Red Sox will be squaring off in the American League Championship Series, and that level of magnitude has Verducci written all over it. So that's why, as I sit here in my pad, and the shower drips, and the floor creaks, the phone rings. And Dick Friedman, the editor who calls Tom Tommy, says, hello. I'm not surprised that he assigns me the Mets-Braves NLCS matchup to begin on October 12th at Turner Field in Atlanta. But what he says next, that catches me off guard. I want you to focus on the Braves closer. Do a good profile on John Rocker. Find out what that guy's all about. Now, if you're under the age of uh, 28, there's a good chance you've never heard of the man. But back in the fall of 1999, as the Braves were compiling a 103-59 record, and winning their 8th straight National League East title, John Loy Rocker, age 24, was one of the talks of baseball. Wherever he goes, and as Reggie Jackson once said, you don't boo nobodies. John Rocker with 59 appearances for the season. He was 24 points. The sprint, the pitch, swung, line drive, left field, Gerald Williams there, and the Braves have swept the New York Mets. John Rocker picks up the save. Rocker got it in, broken back to short. Wallweiss goes to the bag, and Rocker has picked up his third postseason save as the Mets are shut out. First, from a strictly on-field vantage point, there are the statistics. 72 innings pitched, 104 strikeouts, 38 saves. Rocker was six foot four and 225 pounds. His fastball reached the high 90s, and his slider was really good. But more than that, there was the bombast. When Atlanta's closer entered the game, the PA system blared that twisted sister classic, I Want to Rock. Turner Field went crazy because Rocker sprinted in, face dead serious, eyes scowling, lips pursed. He was a little bit Mark Fidrich, a little bit Nolan Ryan, a little bit Al Habrowski, and a whole lot of asshole. He talked nonstop trash. He walked with an unmistakable strut. He clearly thought very highly of himself. And there's some reason to that. John Rocker was a local kid from Macon's first Presbyterian day school, just six years out of high school, now pitching spectacularly for the hometown team. Here, this is Kerry Leitenberg, who was a reliever with John on those Braves, and now works as the pitching coach for the St. Paul Saints. I don't know, he was just a southern kid, only child. I think he was always kind of spoiled as a kid, so... Right. You know, I never had, that's the thing, I never had any issues with him, you know, but it's not like we went and hung out all the time, but I, when I went out and had a couple of beers and he was there a few times and you know, it was just kind of crazy. One thing that's always stuck with me as vintage John was the time he took a baseball and whipped it toward a bunch of fans at Shea Stadium. There's a protective netting between Rocker and the spectators, 
But as they flinched and recoiled, he laughed, like their fear was his pleasure. I'll say that again, because it's pretty warped shit. Their fear was his pleasure. Anyhow, Dick Friedman wants me to devote much of my NLCS time to chronicling the life and times of John Rocker, which is exciting, but hard. Unlike the regular season, when most players are easily accessible, especially when Sports Illustrated comes to town, the playoffs are a cluster hell of, I don't know, 200, 300 reporters. So over the next week, as the Braves dispatch the Mets, and Rocker mocks New York fans and flexes as he struts from the mound and mouths, I struck out your best hitter to front row hecklers after Kang Mike Piazza. Well, I get what I can get. 10 minutes of John Rocker here, 5 minutes there, a couple of quotes from Leitenberg, from Terry Mulholland, from Chipper Jones. I asked John if I can call his parents, Jake and Judy Rocker, and he's good with it. And what happens, and I can see this now, two decades removed, is I make a very common young journalist mistake. What I do is I decide early on, pre-reporting, what the narrative of this story will be. And to me, it's John Rocker, misunderstood dude. All that stuff you see on the field, nah, it's just him playing a part. He's Hulk Hogan. He's Macho Man. In real life, John Rocker's totally different. He's a great guy. He's a softie. So, of course, that's what I find. I ask teammates if really he's a good guy. And, of course, they say, yeah, really. He's a good guy. Mom and dad tell me warm mom and dad stories because that's what moms and dads are supposed to do. Finally, as the NLCS is winding down, I file my story. It's about 2,000 words in length. And while I don't remember all the specifics and Sports Illustrated no longer has a safe copy of the original, it ends with the tale told to me by Judy Rocker about her precious little boy. When John was maybe 10 or 11, we had a dog that was sick and died. And John, he picked up that dog and he carried him up the steps into the house tears streaming down his face. He's such a sensitive person, such a big heart. To be clear, that was my pal Sherry from down the street, but that's about what Judy Rocker told me. That's how the story ends, with that story. And I file it, I slug it. John Rocker is misunderstood. It is scheduled to run. I move on to the next assignment. But then, baseball happens. The Braves beat the Mets in six and meet the Yankees in the World Series, where they're swept. Four games, completely forgettable, no muss, no fuss, done. The shadow left, the New York Yankees, world champions, team of the decade, most successful franchise of the century. Rocker pitches two scoreless innings and mean nothing. And because no one wants to read a profile of a star in the Fall Classic Losers, the article is shipped off to the dustbin of long-lost profiles that never appear in print. Until a couple of months pass. Dick Friedman calls one day and he says, Why don't you see if you can go down to Georgia and spend some time with Rocker? Freshen up the story. This sounds good to me. I mean, yeah, I wrote the piece. I was kind of done with it. But I probably spent a grand total of 20 face-to-face minutes with John Rocker. That is not enough. At the time, Rocker is represented by a pair of brother agents, Randy and Alan Hendricks. And their point man, the guy who handles all the nitty-gritty, is a former Houston Astros pitcher named Joe Sambito. So I dial my phone. And reach Joe. I introduce myself. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I write for Sports Illustrated. And I was working on a story about John Rocker. Yeah, I know who you are. I never ran, huh? Yeah, I'm sorry about that, I say. But the series and all. Anyhow, my editor wants me to hang with John for a day. Maybe get to know him better. Oh man, that'd be great. I'm sure John would love that. You know, he's a really good kid. It's great Sports Illustrated taking an interest. So when would you want to do it? I don't know, I say. Maybe next week if possible? Let me check and get back to you. He gets back to me. I fly down to Atlanta on a Tuesday or Wednesday, stay at the hotel in the CNN Center where Time Inc. gets a discount. I rent a car, but I don't need one. 
I told John would pick me up outside a shopping mall. He's there on time, 9 a.m., in his blue Chevy Tahoe. I enter the car and we shake hands. He's bigger than I remember. Muscles bulging through a t-shirt, hamstrings pushing up against a pair of jeans, firm handshake, forearms that take form. I am armed with three major journalistic tools, a pen, a steno notepad, and a micro cassette recorder. Thanks for letting me do this, I tell him. He says it's his pleasure. In a short while, John is scheduled to speak at Lockhart Academy, a school for learning disabled children not far from here. It's a pretty smart play by the Hendricks brothers and Joe Sambito. Have a reporter tag along for a warm and charitable moment. I'm really inspired by John. Wait, what the? We're on Route 400, trailing a minivan. The vehicle is driving below the speed limit and swerving a bit. Stupid bitch, learn to fucking drive! Rocker screams before yanking the Tahoe one lane over. We approach the toll booth. It costs 50 cents. Rocker tosses in two quarters. The gate fails to rise. He throws in another quarter. It still doesn't rise. The guy behind us honks. Rocker rolls down his window, screams, Fuck you! while extending his middle finger. Finally, after he tosses in two dimes in the nickel, the gate rises. Before pushing on the gas, he brings up a thick wad of phlegm and spits on the toll machine. My tape recorder is on my lap, rolling. I'm taking notes, pen on pad. John Rocker sees this. He's stuck on the driving in Atlanta. Insists it's awful. So many dumbasses don't know how to drive in this town, he tells me. They turn from the wrong lane. They go 20 miles per hour. It makes me want to, look, look at this idiot. I guarantee you she's a Japanese woman. How bad are Asian women at driving? I look at the beige Toyota he's referring to. The driver is a white man. The radio is on. Weird as this sounds, Billy Joel's New York State of Mind is playing. Rocker hates New York. Hates, 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 hates it. And he tells me so. I'll briefly interrupt this narrative to say the tape quality. Eh, it's not so wonderful anymore. But I'll try my best here. And we, you know, we, we walk around wearing the Times Square and stuff. We can seriously walk like an entire city block in Times Square and never hear anybody speak English, right? I mean, Asians and Koreans and Vietnamese and Indians and Russians and Spanish people and everything up there. Right? How the hell they get in this country? We don't know. The day is insane. And when I say insane, I mean, I'm 47 years old. I've seen lots of shit. Out of my approximately 17,155 days on this planet, Time with John Rocker ranks as insane span number one. Among the things that happened are the following. One, we arrive at Lockhart Academy. They play, I want to rock. And John is great. He waves to the kids. He high fives. He gives a motivational talk. It's really terrific. And then, as we're leaving, he spots the Twisted Sister Greatest Hit CD on a table. And without stopping, he grabs it, says, Y'all don't mind if I take this, and exits. He has stolen Twisted Sister's Greatest Hits, a disc even the members of Twisted Sister don't want. Two, at one point his girlfriend is with us in the car. She's in the passenger seat next to John. Very, very nice young woman. I'm in the back. John looks in the mirror and says, Dude, you ever been to Disney World? I have, I reply. You know all those people who dress up like Mickey and Goofy and Donald? Those people? Yeah, I do. Well, Rocker says, they're all faggots, man. They're all fucking faggots. Number three. John Rocker's girlfriend leaves the car. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three. He calls his other girlfriend. Hey, baby, what are you up to? Number four. 
John Rocker calls a black teammate, Randall Simon, a fat monkey. He doesn't mean it in a cuddly sense of the word, like I bought my son a beautiful fat little monkey at Build-A-Bear. He means it in a very clear and deliberate racial manner. There is no ambiguity about this one. Number five, maybe my favorite moment. We're getting lunch at a place located in an outdoor strip mall. I'm walking a foot or so behind him, and he drops his pen that he's holding on the ground. I pick it up. Hey, John, you dropped this, I say. Nah, he says, I meant to. I thought about this moment for 20 years. Truly, 20 years. What sort of human brain works in such a manner that I am done with the pen is followed by, therefore, I will drop it on the ground? The day is long, maybe five hours together. And to be honest, I don't like the man. He's vile. He's bigoted. He's gross. But I let none of those feelings show. I am here as a reporter, not a social critic. I record what he says. I write what I observe. Also, I know he knows it's all on the record because he tells me a handful of things off the record. And at the risk of violating that confidence, I will share with you one of those off-the-record comments John offered to me 20 years ago. You know, he said, I don't really think Bobby Valentine manages the Mets very well. But that's off the record. When we return to the pickup point after the long day, and we're talking five or six hours, he shakes my hand and I thank him for the time. As soon as he pulls away... I take out my cell phone and call two people. First, my mom. Then, Catherine, my girlfriend at the time. I said to you what? I think I have to write a different story. Like, you won't believe the kind of things he was saying, and you went over it, like, one after the other, after the other, after the other. Like, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I, you were just beside yourself because that wasn't why you went down there. A few days later, I head into the office to talk over the rocker experience with Steve Canella, my friend and fellow baseball writer. He's at his desk, so I pull up, armed with the tape. We listen a little bit. This is Steve Canella from a few days ago. I remember specifically talking to you when it before the before the backlash, before you'd even written the story, and then we were just like, "Holy shit! I can't believe we got someone saying this." And yeah. you know, do you cut him some slack? Do you give him a break for maybe getting a little too comfortable with a reporter or forgetting there was a microphone there? And ultimately, we decided what you have to decide, which is the guy said it. You gotta you gotta print it, right? It's not an exaggeration to say I'm at a loss. Do I write the story full throttle? Do I protect Rocker from himself? Was that real what he said, or some sort of show? Was he a wrestler ripping off his shirt and flexing? I don't know. Then, one afternoon while sitting in my apartment, I start thinking about something that happened four years earlier, when I was living in Nashville and writing for the daily newspaper, The Tennessean. My best friend was visiting from Maryland, and we spent a night out on Main Street, hitting up a couple of bars. At one point, we squatted on the curb, and a local singer I'd once profiled stumbled upon us. Jeff, he said, you look like a homeless guy down there on the sidewalk. Pause, and a motion toward Jonathan, my pal. You even got the black eye to make it look more homeless-like. As the singer walked away, I seethed, but uttered nary a word. I just sat there, feeling embarrassed and powerless and meek. I kicked myself a thousand times for that. I still do. Saying nothing wasn't merely saying nothing. It was, via silence, supporting his take. I told myself that would never happen again. I decide, when it comes to John Rocker, to write what I experienced. Hi, this is Laura, Jeff Perlman's mother-in-law, and you are listening to the 100th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang, the weekly writing podcast by writers for writers, which is great and all, but I'm pretty sure my son-in-law makes no money off the project. Why my daughter didn't marry her high school boyfriend, who's now a neurosurgeon, I might add, I'll never know. This is where things get weird. 
The article is scheduled to run in the December 27th, 1999 issue of Sports Illustrated, the final issue of the century. And while the piece I write is filled with Rocker's ugly thoughts on race and sexuality, well, it can't be the cover story. That's because, for the past three months, the editors have been planning what they call the most ambitious project in the magazine's history, a ranking of the top 50 athletes of the century from all 50 states, with a unique cover for each state. And because we were still pretty big scrubs at the magazine, as soon as the playoffs ended, two of us, Steve Cannell and I, were locked in the library and charged with compiling the lists. I can't begin to tell you how sucky this was, so I'll let Steve, now the executive editor at SI, break it down. I remember getting called in literally the day after the World Series. We need you to work on, we need you two to, to spearhead this project. It, it wasn't until like a month later that we realized just, just how badly he had cursed us. We left Evander Holyfield off of Georgia. I think that was, a, that, <laughs> that was, uh, well, I was, <laughs> yeah, there were, there were a couple of mistakes. I mean, well, there was the hardest part about it was that there was not one state that was easy because either you were doing like Maine, which had nobody in it, or mm-hmm. you were doing like California where you could debate, we would debate all night long. Should, you know, Rob, I think we left off Robin Yount and George Brett in California. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they would have been like, they would have been like number one in any other state. Probably Delano de Shields is number three in Delaware. <laughs> 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 your boy, uh, your boy Spencer Dunkley made, made number Delaware 50, too, I believe. <laughs> not even from Delaware. One thing I learned, those lists are absolute bullshit. If you look back, number 34 in Tennessee is a high school wrestler named Charles McTory. There because I used to cover him and he was outstanding. In North Carolina, I needed a 50th person and came across an article in the May 9th, 1999 Greensboro News and Record about Walter Teapot Fry, a former minor league shortstop whose merits were being debated for the North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame. So because, eh, fuck this project, I made Fry number 50, just to see if there'd be an impact. And indeed, eight months later, the same newspaper ran a piece saying that, thanks to SI, the Hall was reconsidering Teapot's candidacy. He never made it. Anyhow, Rocker is not the cover story. And in the days leading up to the magazine's release, Steve and I are told to stay by our phones. The magazine has hired an outside PR agency to handle the inevitable crush of calls that will accompany the 50 Greatest Athletes compilation. The magazine drops. I do one interview about 50 Greatest Athletes. It's an AM radio station in Utah. So, Jeff, why did you have Natalie Williams ahead of Lavelle Edwards? The John Rocker story, meanwhile, explodes. Now, it's a little bit hard to explain pre-Twitter, pre-Snapchat, pre-Facebook, how this worked. But basically, the John Rocker quotes went viral before things went viral. The big quote was his take on riding the 7 train to Shea Stadium, which he called depressing because, quote, it's like you're riding through Beirut next to some kid with purple hair, next to some queer with AIDS, right next to some dude who just got out of jail for the fourth time, right next to some 20-year-old mom with four kids. But others, his dislike of foreigners, his disgust with New York as a place on the map, weren't far behind. I actually remember being on the elevator with Steve Russian, one of SI's great writers at the time, on the eve of the release date, asking if he thought the rocker story might make the Associated Press wire. Are you kidding me, Steve said? I don't think you have any idea how big this will get. That same day, I called Joe Sambito, Rocker's agent, to give him a heads up. Hey, uh, Joe, it's me, Jeff, Jeff Perlman. Hey, so is John great? Yeah, well, he said a few things. Like what? Well, hmm, he called a black teammate a fat monkey. What else? Uh, he said he wouldn't want to ride the subway next to a queer with AIDS. <sighs> what else? Before long, John Rocker was America's number one villain. The headlines are ruthless. 
Rocker's the foul mouth of the South from the New York Post. Redneck rocker can't leave New York alone from New York's Daily News. Rudy Giuliani and Hillary Clinton, running for New York's open Senate seat, both released statements of condemnation. Editorial cartoonists have a field day. On a January 8th, 2000 episode of Saturday Night Live, Will Ferrell, dressed in a Braves uniform, goes to town. And here now with a New Year's wish to kick off the 21st century is Atlanta Braves relief pitcher John Rocker. citizens of New York, may you spend the next hundred years watching the queer Mets go down on your homosexual Yankees. Hey, John, John. What, Quinn? What, Quinn? You shut up. What? What's your problem, you dirty chink? Come on, John. Shut up. What are you homo Mexicans looking at? Any of you ever been bow hunting? I bow hunt. I love my father. I like the Iron Eagle movies. John, what about your message for the new year? Right. Stay focused, Rocker. Daddy's watching. <laughs> Go hard like WWF. Second, in the new millennium, I hope that we can all join together to track down that black baby that the Jews and the Pope had together and kill it before it can destroy the world. Uh, I think that's, that's enough. Bill, am uh, I getting through to you? you I received, bitch? I don't know. Dozens upon dozens upon dozens of calls from radio, TV, magazines. The only one I did at the time was WFAN in New York, a favorite of Sports Illustrated. Otherwise, the decision was made to lay low and let the story do the talking. Rocker wound up being suspended, fined $20,000 that was reduced to five hundred by an arbitrator, demoted, forced to attend sensitivity training. Hank Aaron, the legendary brave slugger, said he was sickened by the remarks. Groups like the Aid Survival Project picketed outside Turner Field. Rocker did a sad interview with ESPN's Peter Gammons and just came off looking broken and pathetic. Inside the Atlanta clubhouse, members of the Braves were not happy. This again is Kerry Leidenberg. You know, the way we were kind of structured back then was just do your job. We don't need any off-field distractions. Everybody, I mean, they wanted guys to just go out there, compete and win, and the goal was to win the World Series. Right. You know, I know Glavin was pissed, and, you know, we had to sit down, and Rocker came and apologized to the team. I think he did feel bad, but I think he was just kind of an immature kid who was kind of, he had a really good year and was kind of a superstar. I mean, he was filthy that year, yeah. you know, and then he just kind of got caught up in it. And, so, and that was the other thing, too, when we went to New York. We were kind of all on the same floor. He was basically on a separate floor with some security there. And so some of the guys were pissed, like, well, he really gets his own security, and he went down like a different elevator. You know, and it was almost like they were treating him like he was some, you know, huge superstar. One day, while sitting at home, I went to the mailbox to see a letter postmarked Macon, Georgia. When I opened it, it was from Judy Rocker, John's mother. It began, Dear Jeff, Similar to another Jewish man, this one from centuries ago, you had a decision to make, whether to choose the righteous path or not. She was likening my plight to another young Jew, this one with a virginal mother, who faced difficult morality choices. 
She concluded the note by asking I not show it to anyone, then added, CC, Frank Childs. To this day, I have no idea who Frank Childs is. And with that, I thought I'd seen it all. Only I hadn't. Not even close. It's February 2000, and I'm in Fort Lauderdale to visit the Baltimore Orioles spring training facility. It's the best time of the year to be a baseball writer. At Sports Illustrated, the magazine rents two condos, one in Tampa, the other in Phoenix, and has its baseball riders drive all over the states from camp to camp to camp. I freaking love it. Warm weather, easy hours, killer expense report, ballplayers feeling chipper and optimistic. Plus, our Tampa pad is a stone's throw away from Red Lobster. You can't put a price on that. Today, I'm with the Orioles. Mike Hargrove is the manager. Cal Ripken's playing third. Delano DeShields at second. Charles Johnson is catching. It's a lot of random names in the clubhouse. Brooke Fordyce, BJ Surhoff, Jeff Conine. I'm here to write a preview for the upcoming baseball issue, but I don't know. The Orioles are not the easiest team. They're a veteran club with a large number of standoffish guys, so I kind of hang by the front of the room near a table. And that's when I see someone staring at the Major League Baseball media ID badge lassoed around my neck. It's Will Clark. Will is the Orioles' first baseman. He's 36, and he's been around a long time. Three years earlier, on one of my first ever baseball assignments, I was in Texas when Clark, then with the Rangers, broke his foot. After the game, as the media gathered around, he took questions. So I asked, sort of innocently, does it hurt? Clark looked at me as if my head were made of cow dung. Does it hurt? He barked. I broke my fucking foot. I was mortified. That's the thing. Will Clark didn't just talk. He cackled. To get an idea, here's a sound clip of him back from 1989 after San Francisco Giants qualified for the postseason. In Fort Lauderdale, Clark is looking at me, at my tag. Why's your pass turned over, he asks. I look down. Oh, I say, you're right. I flip it, and Clark leans in to look. Jeff Perlman, he asks. Yeah. Jeff Perlman? Jeff fucking Perlman? Clark's voice grows increasingly loud. The famous cat choking on a lug nut will the thrill cackle in full bloom. Uh, yeah. Jeff fucking Perlman. Now why the fuck would anyone in here want to talk to you? Why the fuck would we want to talk to you after what you did to Rocker? Why? No wonder you have your pass backwards, you fucking coward. Nobody here is ever going to talk to you. No fucking way. Do you have a problem with what I wrote? Are you kidding me, Clark replies? Are you fucking kidding me? It ends after that, but not really. When I go write about the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, players are pointing and whispering. I visit the Cubs, where pitcher Kerry Wood refuses to have anything to do with me. I call the Dodgers PR guy to try and arrange a sit-down with Gary Sheffield. He tells me Sheffield is refusing to speak with me. Then, when I later approach Chef, he says he had no idea that was ever stated and he had no problem with the rocker piece. It's really bad, because how do you establish yourself as a baseball writer when a good number of baseball players refuse to speak with you? Until this point in my career, I've always worn a backward Kangol hat while covering events. I don't particularly like the look, but as a magazine writer who comes and goes sporadically, I figured it helps players remember me. And it works. Whenever I see Ken Griffey Jr., he always says, there's the hat. Suddenly, though, the hat is a flashing neon sign. Warning. Rat approaching. I'm the rat. Somehow, though, I do my best and I soldier ahead. And February turns to March, and March turns to April, and April turns to May. And in late May, at a meeting inside Sports Illustrated's Manhattan offices, Dick Friedman mentions that somebody should go to Atlanta and cover the interleague series between the Yankees and the Braves. My mind immediately flashes back four years. 
It's the fall of 1996, and I'm a sports writer for the Tennessean in Nashville. I've just been hired by Sports Illustrated, so I'm wrapping up my time in the South. The Tennessean preps editor, a short bearded man named Larry Taft, assigns me that weekend's good pastor Christian David Lipscomb football game. I go, and my story includes the line, the Mustangs David Kirkow, meanwhile, had an up-and-down sort of day. As in, his passes either went way too up or way too down. I think nothing of it. But that week, Lipscomb's parents and boosters and administrators call the office to ream me out. The message? How dare you attack a kid like that? I now have one weekend left of the paper before I leave, and Larry gives me my final assignment, the playoff game between Montgomery Bell and David Lipscomb at David Lipscomb. Larry, I say, they're going to kill me. He's unmoved. You always show your face after a story like that, he tells me. It's a professional way to be. Come late in the fourth quarter, I head down to the Lipscomb sideline to gather quotes as soon as the game ends. I'm spotted, and slowly David Kirkow and his teammates surround me. The quarterback steps forward, takes off his helmet, and says, Don't you ever show your face around here again. It's my last ever assignment for the Tennessean. All these years later, I remain convinced that David Kirkow believes he chased me out of town. Anyhow, I think back to Larry Taft, to David Kirkow, as I sit in the SI meeting. I have not seen John Rocker since At Full Blast ran, and something about that bothers me. So I tell Dick, all right, I'll go. To which he asks, are you sure? Yeah, I say, I, I am. What happens next, I will never forget. Hi, this is Emmett Perlman with a reminder that this is the 100th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang, and it is sponsored by 503 Sports. Visit 503-sports.com to check out some amazing throwback merchandise. And when you do, please text my dad to ask him to let me out of the attic. The rats are eating my muffins. Thank you. It's Sunday, June 4th, 2000. The Yankees and the Braves. Andy Pettit starting against Terry Mulholland. New York enters 29 and 22. Atlanta's 36 and 18. I'm here to write about the series, but really, I'm here to see John Rocker. Kind of. Baseball writers get a bunch of hours of pregame time to linger inside the clubhouses and wait out players. It's long, it's dull, it's often fruitless. There's no place I'd less rather be than a major league clubhouse. I've literally had guys not talk to me so they could read their field and stream. Once, I saw a third baseman named Wes Helms go out of his way to fart in a reporter's face. It's just not a good place for a writer. On this day, I'm sort of a coward. Or put differently, I spend as much time as possible inside the Yankee clubhouse, listening half-heartedly to Derek Jeter and Jason Grimsley, but really thinking, at some point, I have to go over there. I mean, how would you feel? I'm six foot two, maybe 190. He's six foot four, 225. Later, the Mitchell Report will confirm what we all suspect, that John Rocker has juiced out the gills. So he's big, and he's angry, and he's roided, and he has every reason to want to crush my skull into paste. Regardless, I begin walking over. I don't think the distance from the visitor's clubhouse to the Braves' clubhouse in the bowels of Turner Field was more than maybe 100 feet, but it felt like a mile. I walked and I walked, head down, pretending to read my notes, though I had no notes. My hands are sweating. My heart's racing really fast. I'm hoping John Rocker isn't there, so I can say I tried, but, you know, hey, hey, uh, I tried. So I'm walking, and I'm walking, and I'm walking, and I hear a familiar voice, and it says, you don't know how long I've been waiting for this. It's John Rocker. He's wearing street clothes, t-shirt, jeans, baseball cap. 
He walks over. He twists his cap so it's on backwards. I'm standing there, still. He gets in my face. He's clearly not happy. Do you have any idea what you did to me? Do you have any fucking idea? Do you have any fucking idea? Do you know what the fuck you did to my family? To my fucking family? I just listen. Partly out of fear. Partly because, what else am I supposed to do? I wrote the article. It's his turn. I drove you around. I let you speak to my fucking family. I introduced you to people. I fucking treated you so well. I even bought you fucking lunch. And with this line, I have a moment. It's not much of a moment, but it is a moment. Actually, I say, I paid for lunch. Fuck you. Fuck you, you fucking vile people. Fuck you. He's now jabbing me in the chest, and I'm starting to wonder whether he will hit me. I'm also starting to wonder whether they make yachts in light blue, because I really like light blue. Fucking never come in here again, you motherfucker. Never. Finally, after what feels like 17 days, he storms off, screaming at the clubhouse attendant, do not let that asshole in here. I am shaken, and people see it. Bobby Mercer, the former Yankee center fielder who is an announcer with the team, approaches. Hey, are you okay? Bobby Mercer died in 2008. I will never forget this small act of kindness. I think so, I I say. Tom Stinson, the Atlanta Journal and Constitution baseball writer, observes it all. I called him recently to ask what he remembered. We were all waiting to get in, pregame at excess, and I saw Rocker coming down. Rocker was standing there, and I saw you standing there, and I turned to a radio guy and said, you got to time this. We were looking at each other and saying, God, what happens if he jumps in? Because John was a little stronger than we were. Yeah. Uh, it was like 42 seconds or 44 seconds or something like that in a, a pretty one-sided conversation. <laughs> I take the elevator to the press box, where I sit down and pretend to write. When I turn, a half dozen TV cameras are pointed at my back. Someone asked me to autograph a baseball. I'm asked by George Vesey of the New York Times whether I was scared. Yes, I say. I was scared. Over the next, oh, dozen Perlman Thanksgivings, my older brother David takes great older brother pleasure in saying, high-voiced, I was scared. I watch the game from the press box, and multiple times a TV screen shows me, watching me. It's super trippy and super weird. Less than a year later, John Rocker is traded to Cleveland. I see him one more time, in the summer of 2001. I'm writing a profile of Mariners designated hitter Edgar Martinez, and Seattle is playing at the Indians. I enter the Cleveland clubhouse, and Rocker spots me and follows me around with a Kodak disposable camera, taking pictures and trying to coerce his dumbfounded teammates that the joke is funny. I see no one laughing. What are you doing, I ask. Are you 12? Seriously, do you have a problem? At one point, Rocker leans toward Ellis Burks, the veteran Indian outfielder, points in my direction and says, that's a Sports Illustrated guy who screwed me. Burks nods, waits for Rocker to depart, then answers all of my questions. John Rocker's fade is pretty quick. He pitches his last major league game in 2003. Personally, I like his 2002 season with Tampa, when his ERA is 6-6-6. I don't know if John Rocker ever thinks of it this way, but I've long felt we're attached at the hip in some weird and unfortunate manner. One day, during the 2000 season, while sitting in the press box in Pittsburgh, I receive a phone call from a fact checker at George Magazine, the publication founded by John F. Kennedy Jr. A writer named Pat Jordan is working on a piece about Jake, John's father, and the fact checker needs to ask me a question. Did I, in fact, call several African-American women in a department store the N-word in order to bait John during our day together? Did I what? According to Jake Rocker, you used the N-word to egg John on, he says. Is that correct? I deny it and assure the man it's untrue. Okay, he says, I'll make a note of that. A few weeks later, I'm in Las Vegas for the AAA World Series. 
I visit the hotel bookstore and see George. Jordan's Jake Rocker story appears, as does the accusation of racism. My hands begin to shake. I return to my room and call Catherine, my future wife. I'm suing the family, I tell her. I know I shouldn't, but I am. I am suing them. She tells me to calm down, take a walk, and move on. She's right. I move on. As years pass, I actually try reaching out to John a couple of times, just to make peace. My wife thinks it's insane, and she's right. When Jake dies in a car accident in 2007, I write a condolence letter and send it. Catherine is dumbfounded. Earl, he doesn't want to hear from you. Wait, but I'm just trying to do the right thing. No, Earl, he doesn't want to hear from you. He hates you. You're not the person he wants to hear from when his parents dead. In 2011, an Atlanta magazine writer calls to interview me for a profile he's writing on John. I ask if he's willing to share John's contact information, and he forwards me an email address. I write a quick note. Hey, John, maybe we can move on. Something like that. The writer calls me a few days later, asking that I not reach out again. John did not like hearing from you, he says. I think part of this, a big part, is guilt. I know I didn't do anything wrong journalistically, but it's still my story that got him in trouble. His life was made worse by my presence, all in the name of a magazine article. I have two kids, and I always tell my children, don't make another person's life more difficult by being in it. Also, while reviewing the tapes, I noticed something that really bothers me. If you listen closely, as he talks about the New York City subway, I laugh. and it's a nervous response. But was that egging him on? Was it saying to him, I'm okay with this? I don't know. Maybe. But just when I start feeling bad, I reconsider. Here's John, appearing on InfoWars with Alex Jones. New Black Panthers to RNC. Our feet will be on your mother effing necks. Talk about being FBI funded. Hey, John. Hey, listen, good to have you here. Uh, Wow, where should we start? Tell us about what you've done out of baseball. I know you're very successful in business. Um, you know, I, I guess, you know, very successful, uh, is, is always, uh, I guess, in the eye of the beholder, always, always. Here's John on Greg Mars show in 2012. John, could, could we go back just for a brief moment and touch, uh, on what happened, uh, back with that wonderful, uh, Sports Illustrated, uh, interview some years ago with that bumbling fool, the bumbling idiot Jeff Perlman from Sports Illustrated. How did that influence, uh, your life after that fact? Well, it was, um, you know, I guess from a you know standpoint of a you know a playing specifically, I you know I don't think it hurt my numbers. I mean the uh, uh, that's of course what the uh, you know the the lovely uh, sensation loving and propaganda uh, you know propaganda machine that most of the media is. That's why yeah. I love to you know, love to tell people that the article derailed me because I'm a conservative. And Here's John on common sense media. I love politics. I love talking politics. I love reading about politics. I was going to be a political science major in college uh, if I finished. And, you know, that, that one Sports Illustrated article many years ago, like I said, it took place over about 10 hours worth of, worth of interview time. I mean, politics were, you know, sporadically throughout the day, you know, put quite a, a few of the talking points. And we came upon immigration. So simply talked right. about, I don't agree with the U.S. immigration policy. Those were the, the, the kind of conversations that were had with Jeff Perlman. And he, he asked me, well, what do you think about all the immigrants in New York? I'm like, well, that's that obviously massive immigration population there. You know, you walk down the street and there's, and you just, you know, you can go three blocks without ever hearing the English language spoken. I mean, this was a conversation that was had, obviously, with his 
grossly negative light from the picture that was put on, you know, the very, very cover of the article to the title to his intro of, you know, a page and a half, two pages before he gets to these, you know, somewhat surgically extracted uh, uh, quotes with his negative overtones preceding those. That's that's basically you know, the, the way that whole thing uh, that whole thing came about. But it was you know basically me not coming from a biggest rant, not coming from a, a you know a, a racist point of view or standpoint. For a while, he sold Speak English T-shirts off a now defunct website. He clearly inspired the character Kenny Powers in the HBO show Eastbound and Down. I got to tell you, I thought the blacks in Baltimore were bad, but turns out they're nothing compared to these fags you got in San Francisco. <laughs> he was a contestant on Survivor who rubbed everyone the wrong way. He worked briefly as a columnist for World News Daily, a far, far, far right-wing news site, and wrote such sentences as, Doesn't it seem like Obama will only be happy once every illegal alien is granted citizenship and can vote in an election? And, absolute certainties are a rare thing in this life, but one I think can be collectively agreed upon is the undeniable fact that the Holocaust would have never taken place had the Jewish citizenry of Hitler's Germany had the right to bear arms and defend themselves with those arms. I'm pretty sure he works in real estate, or at least tells people he works in real estate. But every now and then, you'll see John Rocker at a table in Cooperstown on Hall of Fame weekend, signing baseballs and talking politics and telling people how, once upon a time, the New York Jew writer with an agenda took advantage and quoted selectively, which is fine. Because thanks to Victor Nunez, 20 years after the most memorable interview of my career, I have the tapes. And John Rocker is welcome to listen to them. You give a kid a pot of money and you put him on TV for being better at a game than you and I will ever be. I want to thank everyone for supporting Two Writers Slinging Yang through these first 100 episodes. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. And reviews are always appreciated. The theme music is by the insane MC White Owl. And a special nod to the closing song today, John Rocker by John McCutcheon. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing. <laughs>